Lord, we thank you for, for uh, your goodness. We thank you for the sun shining. We thank you for grace that's new every day. We thank you for cooler weather. Uh, God, we thank you for new seasons, and we thank you for uh, new adventures that you're bringing our church on. We pray that as we enter into this season of preparation, of exploring and, and, and reintroducing our vision and, and recalibrating uh, ourselves to the vision that, that you've called this church to, to walk towards, that... Um, yeah, God, you'd spur in us, you'd inspire in us to, 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 to play a part in that vision. That, God, you'd show us new things about you through this vision of this church, through the story of Nehemiah that we'll begin to look at, and uh, that, God, you would spark something new in us. God, we pray for something new in this place today. I pray for a new, fresh fire to, to start to burn in our hearts today. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you did subscribe already to our WhatsApps updates, you would have found out already this week that we are starting a brand new sermon series today looking at the book of Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah, and th- I'm excited. This is the first time in my life I've ever gotten to preach through the book of Nehemiah. So I'm excited because it's a, a new road. It's a new river for me. Uh, and what we're doing, the, the goal, just so you know this, is the goal of, of this series is we're going to look and examine and study the life, the story of Nehemiah, and along the way, connect it and tie it and maybe braid it together with what we believe the vision for this church is. And, 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 and there's so much, if, if you believe that the Bible just really isn't relevant to a lot of parts of your life, maybe you just need to start reading the Bible differently. Because in Nehemiah, we see so many great leadership principles, so much vision principles that I hope that you can glean to also apply not only to this church, but to your life as well. And I believe God's put you in some portion, some platform of influence, some platform of, of, of leadership in your life that you can take the principles that Nehemiah explains and, and walks out and apply those to your life and see God do great things in your life, okay? So that's where we're going to, to walk through. And, and you know, it's very, very, we talked about this before, it's very easy for us as we examine scripture, as we, as we look at this guy named Nehemiah, and, and because he's in the Bible, because he's, he's got this great story, it's, it's, it's very easy to, be, to, to think of him as, as this superstar, whole nother level type of guy. And a lot of times when we look at scripture, we put these people maybe up on too high a pedestal of these were these just untouchable, larger than life, perfect people that, that we can just kind of read about. Kind of like when you watch William Wallace in the movie Braveheart, you forget that perhaps maybe he was just a normal, ordinary guy in real life who just was crazy enough to think he could do these things. I, I, I'm sorry to break your heart, Dwight. I know. Mel Gibson will forgive you too. All right, but the, the point is, is that so often we tend to forget that that these people that we look at in Scripture, by and large, were just ordinary, everyday people who God used in extraordinary ways for His purposes. You know, if, if, if you pay attention to, you, to the Bible, if you pay attention when you read through Nehemiah, if you pay attention when you read through Scripture, sometimes that humanity starts to creep out. But a lot of times you, you, you'll start to see that, that they're us. They're us. Like, Nehemiah is not like this, like, superstar. He's not like Steve Jobs, right? Steve Jobs, I, God bless the guy, he, his theology was out of whack, but... 
the guy somehow made us, made us believe that computers are cool and that it's perfectly fine for me to drop a boatload of cash on a little bitty glass and metal screen and then two years later drop even more on one that is just a little bit faster and, and think that that's perfectly fine, right? But Nehemiah is not a Steve Jobs. He's a normal everyday guy. And, and, and I want us to start to see that. And I want us to, because when we start to think of these people as, when we start to think of Nehemiah or Abraham or Moses as, as Michael Jordan, as the greatest of all time, okay? If you're one of those people in this room that subscribes to the fact that LeBron is the greatest basketball player of all time, you are absolutely in heretical wrongness. The official stance of this church is that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time, okay? That is our theological statement of the day, all right? And if you don't believe that, you're absolutely welcome to leave this church and go find a cult that believes that LeBron is better, all right? But no. But the point is that if we start to see Nehemiah, if we start to see Abram, if we see Noses, I just made up a, a Bible character, Noah or Moses, as these greatest of all time, Hall of Fame superstars. We tend to, to lose sight of the fact that, and, and start to believe that there's no way we could ever live up to that standard. But Nehemiah is just an ordinary guy. An ordinary guy who loved God, and God placed him in a platform of influence, and when the time was right, he used that influence for the better of other people. And that's what we're about to see. You go ahead and open your Bible, your Bible app to, to Nehemiah chapter 1. I'll give you a little bit of background on Nehemiah, and we'll jump in at verse 4 today, okay? Uh, but Nehemiah, currently when we pick up in this story, he's 800 miles away from the city of Jerusalem. Remember a few weeks ago when we started, when we we talked about Esther, right? And we talked about how during the Persian uh, kingdom had taken over and had been kind of an occupying force for the the, the people of Israel. Um, that's where we, we're kind of still in that time period. Nehemiah is 800 miles away from the city of Jerusalem. He's in the palace of the king of Persia, and and. Meanwhile, like I said, 800 miles away, Jerusalem, kind of his home country's capital, is an anarchy. Complete anarchy. There's no gates, there's no walls, there's no security in his hometown. And it, he starts to hear about this one day. You remember, he's, he's living in this insulated, palatial life where he's a servant of the king of what at that time was one of the dominant world empires of the time. And, and so it's very easy to get caught up in the everyday rigors of, of serving the king and, and taking care of this king and, and getting so focused on life inside the palace that you can forget that sometimes your hometown or things outside the walls of that kingdom are in complete chaos. Isn't that easy to do for us even just in our normal life? Isn't it easy to forget that one out of every five people in our city today lives below the poverty line? That scrapes by, like it's so easy to, to get so focused on get up, go to work, do your job, eat some lunch, go back to work, do some more work, go home, have dinner with your family and your kids, maybe watch some movies on Netflix and then go to bed, that you forget that there are elderly people in the city that are trying as hard as they can 15, 16 hours a day just to find cardboard to make, on a good day, 75 Hong Kong dollars. 
so easy for us to find our own little palatial life that we get so focused on, right? So you can forgive Nehemiah for whenever he hears the news one day of what we see, that, that it just utterly breaks him. There's also not a CNN app that he can keep up to date with at this time too. So what, that's where we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4. Nehemiah is a Jew. He's serving the king of, of Persia and this is where we see him. So he asked one day, so how's things in my, my home country? And then, then they said, it's bad. Like, it's just really bad. And so this is where we pick up. He says, when I heard this, obviously he's writing this story. He says, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, O oh Lord God of heaven and great, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Verse 6, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, which they were at that point, by the way, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. Verse 10. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh Lord, please hear my heart. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes' reigns, reign, I was serving the king as wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king said to me, the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, but I replied, Long live the king! How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, Well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king and you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city wall where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I will be gone, the king agreed to my request. So he continues on. But, but here's what I want you to see. There's a few things we want to talk about today. Okay. Number one, You see that Nehemiah was a faithful, righteous man. 
more than once it talks about how he was in a time of prayer. And you see that, that in, in order for you to be the leader, in order for you to, to walk through and find the vision that God wants you to see for your life, for your, your ministry, for, for, for your family, you've got to spend time in prayer. And Nehemiah talks about this. He says that for days when he heard about the fall of Jerusalem, he wept. He wept and he mourned and he cried and he fasted and he prayed that God would restore that city and God would restore his people. And not only that, he, not only does it imply that he had a regular time of prayer, it also shows that he had these on-the-spot prayers, right? Didn't we see that throughout this, this time? It says that he had prayed, he'd sat down and he prayed for days. So he had a regular time of prayer. But then whenever the king said, hey, what's wrong? He immediately started to see, he, he took this moment, he said, okay, God, this is it. Please help me right now. I'm going to present this to him. And boom, let, let it go, didn't he? So, number one, how's your prayer life? How's the time when you and God get to talk? How's the time when you and God get to commune? How's the time when you and God get to, to get to kind of hash it out? How's, how's the time whenever God gets to lay out this vision for your life, this, this plan for your life? Because ultimately, prayer is the on-ramp of vision. What is about to happen throughout the rest of this story, in the coming weeks we'll see, throughout the life of Nehemiah, would never have happened if he had not spent that season, those days, mourning and weeping and praying and pleading with God to do something that only God could do. So if you ever, if you feel like you're stuck, if you don't have direction, if you just don't feel like God is pointing you to your true north, if, if God is not sending you, or God, you just don't feel like, you feel like a rudderless boat, how's your prayer life, Christian? Are you finding a regular time throughout your day to spend time with God and carve out that time to say, God, I need you to show me this? Because I think what you're going to see and what I believe is that as Nehemiah walks out what he's beginning to walk out, God had laid out the plans for this vision throughout that season of prayer, without that, through that season of mourning and weeping and pleading. You see, prayer is the foundation of vision. Nehemiah's vision was birthed through his season of weeping and praying. And prayer begins to lay out the plan. And that word vision, I love, I love the definition of vision. I love it because it applies so much to what the church is all about. It says, vision is the act or power of anticipating that which will or may come to be. The act or power of anticipating that which will or may come come to be. And so when Nehemiah hears about the current state of absolute desolate anarchy going on within the city of Jerusalem, his heart breaks. And through that season of heartbreak, God starts to birth for him a vision of what Jerusalem could be. And if you know the story of Nehemiah, you know that he goes off and he builds a wall, right? 
He says, you know what, I'm going to build, just current politics aside, this is what Nehemiah says, he says, I'm going to build a wall, and I'm going to make Israel great again. Okay? All right? So <laughs> that's what happens. That's what he says. Okay? And not politics aside, that's exactly what he did. All right? So nothing's new under the sun, by the way, folks. But anyways... Um, but, but the vision that Nehemiah had was never about a wall. That's what, that's what I want you to understand. Because the vision was not about just building a wall. It was more about what building a wall would provide to his people. And a wall for a city, it, it seems so, I think, just insignificant and weird in, in today's international world. Even when we live in a town where we build bridges to, to other cities and other countries, the idea of creating an enclosed wall seems really bizarre, right? But that's, why, that's when you have to kind of flip the switch off of your 21st century brain and turn on the switch or turn up the volume on your pre-BC, pre-historical, westernized culture. In that, in order for you to find any kind of security, any kind of safety, in order for you to be able to sleep safe at night, you needed to live in a city that was enclosed with some kind of primary security. And in those days, the primary mode of security was not ADT home security systems, right, or your little webcams. It was an actual brick-and-mortar wall. Because if your city had no walls, it was open to gangs of marauding pirates. It's the only other way to describe it. Your life, your city, your security was in complete, complete risk if you did not surround yourself with security at night. And so in order for order and law and security to be restored to his city, the wall and the gates had to be built. So this, the, the vision was never about just a wall, right? Build that wall, build that wall. No, that was not ever about that. It was, I care so much about the safety of my people and the safety of God's city. Remember, Israel, or I'm sorry, Jerusalem was literally for generations where the presence of God met people, Right? We would never be surprised today if we took the doors off of our flat and came home one day from work and found our home to be robbed. It would not surprise you, right? I mean, everybody makes sure that your door is locked and oftentimes triple locked whenever you go to bed at night because it gives you that safety of, I don't want what's dangerous out there to come into this place that I need for my rest, right? And that's what that wall provides. It provides that ability for us to rest. So the, the wall was the physical representation of the rest and the security and the safety and even just the credibility that would be found in that city. 
And that's that. We 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 could stop that right there and say, you know what? What we need to do as a, as a church, and I, I hope that you can you you've begun to do this and you continue to do this and you do this even more after today. Is you find regular time, pray for your church, pray for this church. Pray that, that as we enter into our season of preparation before we move to ICS in December, that, that God would continue to build up the vision for this church. Because again, vision is always birthed through seasons of prayer. That's just how it works, folks. That's, that's, that's how God is going to birth this new thing in your life. That's how God has birthed this new thing in our church. And what is interesting is that as you see through, as you see at the, just the tail end of what we looked at today, Nehemiah is serving this drink to the king, and you can see that he's troubled, right? You can almost, if you picture it in your mind, you can see that this just really, really bothers him. And you remember what happened right at the end of verse 1, he talks about how, God, make me successful, so that I could have influence over this king to let this vision come into play, right? And so what we tend to lose sight of is that immediately in verse, in chapter two, the king says, we see that scene where the king says, hey, what's wrong? So you can almost start to be led to believe that like 20 minutes later, he's serving the king his dinner. What in reality is, is that four to five months after he, he prayed that prayer for the first time, was when this interaction occurred. So I have to believe that for four to five months, he's constantly praying, God, give me this opportunity. God, is today that opportunity. God, is today that opportunity. God, continue to give me this plan. And so what you see is that not only did God give him the vision of of restoring Jerusalem, but then he also started to lay out the plan for him because as soon as that day comes, whenever the king says, hey, what's wrong with you? That, that he immediately says, okay, God, this is it. This is that day. You've answered that prayer. Let's do this. And so not only as you, as, as you begin to see this week as you read through Nehemiah, um, that's your homework, by the way, he starts to lay out his plan for the king. He starts to say, well, here's what I want to be able to do, right? You notice the interaction is not that the king says, boy, you just really look troubled. Is everything all right? And he says, well, no, because my hometown, my ancestry, the the place where I have this spiritual covenant with these people is in ruins and and it hurts and it destroys me. And the king says, well, what can I do to help? And and Nehemiah does not say, oh, I don't know. Any ideas? He didn't do that, did he? He knew exactly what needed to be done because he had poured so much of his energy, so much of his prayers into God, what needs to be done in order for this to be restored. And folks, here's what I'm pleading with you to do today. And I need you, okay? I need you to pray for our church. We need God to give us our vision and give us our plans for our vision. I want to share with you a little bit what I believe God wants us to look like, but I need you to give us more specifics as well, okay? And as God gives you these visions for our church, WhatsApp it to us this week. That's the great thing about WhatsApp. It's a conversation, right? And you now have a conversational line where in case in the middle of your prayer time throughout the week, God says, hey, here's what I think... 
should be. Boom, 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 boom. You can send it. What a day we live in, isn't it? All right. But what happened was, throughout that time of prayer, throughout that time of maybe what people would look like, nothing really happening. Can you imagine there being no progress to a vision that God's given you for four or five months? Really, what was happening was that God was laying out the plans for Nehemiah so that when the time came, he knew exactly what to do. As you continue to read on, he says, I need you to give me letters to these people so that when I ask for stones, when I ask for for wood, they'll know it comes from the king and I'm going to be gone for this many days. And as we continue to read on, you see how much planning was involved. It was that season of God... Break my heart for my, my, my city of ancestry so that we, you can call, you, you're calling me to restore it. That God began to give him the work. And in modern day terms, he planned the work and then he worked the plan. First boss I ever had at, my, at, a, at a real job right out of college said, that's how we work here is you plan your work and then you work your plan. And that's exactly what you see God doing in Nehemiah's life. And that's where this vision was birthed and created. So the the finish line, again, was never to just surround the city with stone and wood. The stone and wood were simply a means that provided to the end of the safety, the security, the reestablishment of Jerusalem as a city. So the finish line, if you will, was the reestablishment, the the safety, the security of Jerusalem. The wall was just a means to help provide that. So what's the finish line for our church? What's our vision as as a church? Our vision for this church, for New Heights Church, has always been to oversee and, and, and be a part of the establishment of a church that would multiply itself and, and be have a, a, a hopeful, positive presence within every major city center of this city. And what I mean by that is throughout every major kind of town area of this church, our church would have a healthy spiritual community established and ministering and serving that particular neighborhood, whatever you want to call it. And, and so... Our goal has never been to be the biggest church in town. That's not. Number one, we're not competing with other churches. We're all on the same team. I'm friends with the pastors of of a lot of the international churches in this, this city. And we pray for each other regularly. We're not in competition with them. But our vision has been to seek the welfare of our city by having a presence within these major kind of city town centers within Shaten, within Kowloon, within the new territories, within Hong Kong Island, and, and, and be able to identify these areas and saying, what are some ways that we can serve and bless our community? And then we've started in Shaten. That's just where we've started, folks. We're just in the starting phase. Five years in, we're in the starting phase, right? And so... That's been our business, to see how many life-giving, healthy, and covenant spiritual communities we can plant and reproduce in this city as possible. And, and so a couple weeks ago, um, last week, Mark, Mark talked about the, the, the pointing to Christ throughout the Torah, throughout the Old Testament, and the week before that, Dwight um, 
graciously stepped in and, 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 and preached for me while I was out. I was finally, after three years of, of trying in vain, I was able to register for the Hong Kong Cyclothon and was able to ride in it and um, had, had, a, had a very good, had a good time, but I, I learned a lot too. I saw a few lessons and this, I feel so vain putting pictures of myself on, on for you to look at, okay? But um, these were posted and, and, and Kanan found them and sent them to me this week. And so... Um, I have to say, you know they, they hired the best photographers around when they can make someone like me look like I'm attacking and, and sprinting away uh, because that's not exactly what real life happened, okay? Um, but um, if you do notice, though, uh, on my right arm here, you can kind of see some black marks, and there's you can't see it really in that photo, but there's kind of a nice little tear in my jersey. It's because uh, what I learned during my hour and a half of... of chaos on the cyclothon um, was that this is a great event and it invited and opened up 5,200 riders from all of Hong Kong to go on and ride through bridges, ride across bridges, ride through tunnels that legally I'm not allowed to do seven days out of the week. But for one day a year, I got to, right? And so that was a great experience. Thank you for blessing me and my family and letting me go do that. It was very therapeutic. But what, what I learned through the cyclothon is that I think what it did... From my perspective, it's trying to be all things to all people. And the reason why I have this nice little burn and, and darkness on my arm and a tear in my, my jersey and my shoulder is because um, there was an inexperienced rider that I was riding behind. And as we started to come up on top of the Singma Bridge and one of the, one of the parts of the course, he got out of saddle to try to push really hard. And due to his lack of experience fell. And we were going about 35, 38 kilometers an hour. And so he fell over the front of his handlebars, onto his shoulder, rolled around. I tried to swerve from behind, from, because I was behind him. His bike did some weird bike thing, bounced a couple times, and then threw into mine. And so that caused me to fall, not fall, but basically be pushed all the way to the side of the course where I could feel myself tipping over. So it was either fall as a result of that, or get as close to this concrete barrier and use it while I'm riding about 40 kilometers an hour to push and prop myself back up. So I chose B, which gave me a really nice, nasty uh, bruise on my shoulder and uh, some road rash on my elbow, okay? But I stayed upright, and that was the miracle. But anyways, the point of that is for you to be impressed with how good of a rider I am, okay? No, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that... What, what I learned the hard way whenever I began this journey of cycling is that sometimes if I don't, sometimes I'm not good enough to be in these particular races. There's a group of guys I wake up and, and go out and to Science Park and ride sprints with on Tuesday morning at five o'clock, right? I think you've met a few of them. They've come to, the, to our church before. But... Um, the guy who organizes it, his name is Richard. He's a 48-year-old Singaporean who literally rides circles around me whenever we, uh, whenever we do some climbing sessions. It's very encouraging. Makes me feel really, really strong. One time I climbed to the top of uh, Soywo Road, and um, he was sitting at the top after I obviously was the last one and was reading the newspaper waiting for me to arrive, right? But anyways, what he does is he separates the riders on Tuesday mornings into the group A, and the group B, right? And after about two years of doing this, I know my place in the pack is at the end of group B, right? I call myself the group C leader, 
all right? But the group A guys are incredibly fast and incredibly, incredibly strong riders. And, and as a result, they're more talented. And they, they are more comfortable at sprinting at high speeds just centimeters away from each other, right? Because they know the guy next to them that they're racing is not going to do anything dumb and swerve the wrong way and hit their, their tire and, and send them flying. Whereas, like, wheel suckers like me are all over the place zigzagging, just trying to just stay upright most of the time, right? And so what I've learned at the, at, there's, a, there's, a, there's a spiritual principle to this, I promise, okay? You're not just getting a, a cycling um, seminar today. But the spiritual principle I learned throughout the, um, throughout the cyclothon this year was that it's trying to be everything to all people, where really... What, what perhaps needs to occur in order for it to be better is that there needs to be a group A and there needs to be a group B. Because the people that I was riding, I, I rode this thing by myself because I didn't trust or know any of the riders that I was riding with, right? I didn't find any of my friends at 3.30 in the morning when I was trying to line up and queue in, in TST that day, okay? So whenever your pastor doesn't speak here on a, on a Sunday, most of the time he's not sleeping in. He's waking up at 2 in the morning, putting on Lycra and driving down to TST to, to ride in a race with other crazy people, okay? But um, they did. Uh, I rode this thing by myself because I didn't know or trust or <laughs> see anybody around me in my bunch that I trusted to get and draft with. That's, that's how you do a lot of cycling in a bunch is that you draft off of each other. You get as close to the rear wheel of the person in front of you so that they can take a lot of the wind away from you. Studies show you use 30% less energy whenever you're drafting and, and cycling, right? And so... Um, after seeing the, the guy in front of me completely bite it about seven kilometers into this thing, I said, I'm on my own. I'm not getting behind anybody here because I don't trust these guys and I don't know them. And, and I realized that, that a lot of times in church, especially within our church, I think maybe we're trying to be everything for everyone with, with too much. And a lot of what I see in our church, what I see within our church is in order for our church to, to really accomplish our purpose which is to build up encourage and empower people who change the world we've got to have a front door right we've got to have a front door and what I mean by that is a place where people are easily able to enter and be connected if I'm going to invite people into my house for dinner I'm going to give them directions and make sure the front door is unlocked right if the front door is locked and nobody comes to my dinner party, who's at fault for that? It's me. And so if we as a church don't have a front door, then we as a church are not doing our job of inviting and welcoming people into our spiritual covenant community so that we can build up, encourage, and empower them to change the world, right? But once you get somebody in the house, once I invite somebody over for dinner, I've got to show them where the table is. I've got to show them what the food is. I've got to invite them to sit down and begin to eat, right? That's kind of the next steps, right? So what I see within our church is the need for a front door 
and a need for next steps. And, and I think what we've done up to this point is that we tried to make the Sunday morning gathering the place where you can enter and have access into our church and be the front door to our church, but we've also tried to make it the next steps. And, and I don't think that strategy is working. It's like in any kind of it's in any kind of foreign language acquisition, right? You don't have the people who are in Spanish 4 be in the same class as the people as Spanish 1 because what you're learning is either going to be too remedial for the Spanish 4 students or too advanced for the Spanish 1. So what we've got to be able to do as a church is separate and say, and just just have a strategy of saying, okay, you know what, this is going to be our front door as the church. This is going to be where we intentionally try to bring our friends, our family, into our spiritual covenant community and invite them along so that we can build them up and we can show them who they can be in Christ and we can encourage them to take those next steps what are those next steps? Well, the first step is placing your faith in Christ. Right? The first step is placing your faith in Jesus to save you, to renew you, to give you grace, and to receive that grace. But we can't stop there, right? A responsible parent doesn't just give birth to a child and say, okay, good luck, you're on your own. Notice I use the word responsible parent, right? Because I feel like if someone is going to come into my home for dinner, I'm going to make sure that there is a plate for them, that there are utensils for them, there's a glass for them, and there's enough food to feed them. So what we as a church have got to decide is what is our front door and what are our next steps? And the way I see it is that if you take this question and apply it to the context of our vision of a church to be a multiplying, reproducing, spiritual covenant community that meets scattered throughout this entire city, the only way to do that, unless someone comes in and drops a trillion dollars in our blue box today that we can then go out and rent, you know, 4500 different venues throughout this city is through the context of small groups. It's through the context of circles rather than rows. Where it's a context of, you know, we're going to say that Sunday, just because most people in the city have a basic understanding of what church is. They think of church as there's that place you go to on Sunday and you either eat dim sum before or you eat dim sum after. But either way, there's some tea and some dim sum involved. And then you go and you sing a couple songs and some, some, some preacher gets up and tells some really bad jokes or in this case puts pictures of himself and Lycra on a screen and, and then you go home after. And that's what people kind of have an understanding of what church is. And so what that means is it's an easier in entry point to making that a front door? Or do we say the front door to our church is through our small groups that we establish and we invite people into our home? 
and we invite people who we know, who we're friends with, who, who are a friend of a friend around a dinner table and we study the scriptures and we pray together. I mean, ultimately, that's, and we, then we make the Sunday gathering the next steps, the celebration of what God did in our groups throughout all over our city. That's, what, that's something we as a church have got to decide. What's our strategy? What, what, what do we see as the best way to restore the hope of our city? Because again, ultimately, what Nehemiah was doing was not just building a wall around a town. He was restoring hope and dignity to a community. So, what is the best way to restore hope and dignity to our city? That's the question I want you to wrestle with this week. That's the question I want you to pray and fast and mourn and weep over. Because again, if there's something that is in very, very short supply in our city right now, isn't it hope? Isn't it hope? When the majority of people wish that, when, when, when the majority of the people in this city believe that the future is going to be darker than the present, that's not a very hope-filled place, is it? So what is it? What can we as a church do to leverage and and use to restore hope and dignity to our city? How are we going to build a wall and make make Hong Kong great again? What's going to be our, our means to the end? That's what I want you to wrestle with this week. It's the question I wrestle with every day. I do know that God has called me to play a part in restoring hope and dignity to this city. I know it 100% in my soul. And he's going to use you to be a part of a team that restores hope, restores dignity, restores this city. Not through just social causes, but something deeper than that, folks. Through spiritual renewal. Through revival. God, I believe that God has been reviving our church for a season. He's, he's been reviving us for a while. He's been doing something new and fresh in us. And it's time for us to do something, to, to be able to harness what he's doing and send it out into the world around us. And what better time for us to do it than than as we begin to move into a facility that will just simply by square footage alone be able to hold the growth that's about to occur within our church. I mean, you know, we always use that that little nice nugget of theology of God's not going to give you more than you can handle, right? And we think of that in the, in the bad times, you know? Like, man, life is really hard right now. I've been, I've, I've been struggling with this, and my friend, my girlfriend left me, and this, that, and the other, but then somebody walks alongside and says, hey, don't worry, buddy. God will never give you more than you can handle, right? And that sounds nice. Sometimes in that situation, you want to punch your friend in the face, you know? But <laughs> I see that hand. That's right. Amen. Um, but, but a lot of times we tend to forget that that also applies in the good times as well. If God wanted to send, what if God wants to send 5,000 people to this church? 
Would we systemically, just even physically, square footage-wise, be able to handle that in our current venue? No. We couldn't handle 150 in here, right? I mean, we could, but it would be, hey, remember that time we broke every fire code available and brought everybody in? But what if God is wanting to to birth this and facilitate that in our new facility, which can hold that many, which we can meet in a chapel, which holds roughly 125, 150 people comfortably, has classrooms for children's classrooms to, to have kids' church, and then even facilitate future growth to move into a 500 seat auditorium? Like, what if God wanted to see that growth happen? But we were just comfortable in here. He wouldn't give us more than we could handle. What if God wants you to play a part in restoring hope and dignity to this city? And and yet, due to your levels of comfort and your levels of, of, of convenience, you say, I just want to sit I just, want to, I just want to get comfy. Folks, that will never happen. The vision of this church will not occur unless we all say, I've got a part to play. And this is what I can bring to the table. I've used the example before. We're all a little piece of a jigsaw puzzle when by itself seems very insignificant and useless. But when we bring our one little bitty piece of the jigsaw puzzle to the table and we place it down and we all put it together, it creates something very, very spectacular. And if you don't think that what you bring to the table is important enough, please, by all means, put a jigsaw puzzle together with your child and find one piece missing at the end. It is the most unsatisfying moment of your day to put together that that 54-piece jigsaw puzzle and find the one piece of the toucan's nose missing. I'm speaking from experience, obviously, okay? You are important in the kingdom, folks. You all have a significant role to play in seeing the renewal and restoration of Hong Kong. And when you believe you don't, you're listening to the wrong voice. God has great plans for you. And God has great plans for us. But in order for that to occur, we've got to bring our little jigsaw puzzle to the table. So, what's our front? Here's what I want you to pray this week. If you need to write this down, do it. If you need to take a photo, write it. You'll get WhatsApp this week, so that's a great time to, to sign up and be reminded. What is our front door? And what is our next steps? Now, I could sit up here and I could tell you exactly, here's what I think is going to happen, but what I'm learning is that it's more important for you to hear what God has to say than what Brad has to say. And I feel like God has given me something this week and throughout this last season. And I just want, I just, I don't want to rob you of hearing that in that, in that moment of prayer from God. So as you pray for New Heights this week, I want you to ask God, God, what is my church's front door to the community? 
And how can I play a part in opening that door to my neighbors? And then secondly, God, what are the next steps for my church? Once someone comes into my church and accepts Christ as their Savior and feels a part of a spiritual family for the first time, what, what can I do, what can we do to lead them and empower them to change their world? That's called making disciples, folks. That sounds, you know, disciple is not a word you use on the subway or even talking to your friend throughout a normal day, right? But literally, a disciple means someone who is following the teachings of someone. So what is it that are next steps that are ultimately leading people to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus? What context does that come in? What does that look like? Those are your prayers for this week. I'm going to ask us to pray a lot of big prayers and pray a lot of challenging, questioning prayers over the series of this, of this, this, this book of Nehemiah because it brings up a lot of challenging prayers in me. But I want us all, as the, the foundation of something great, to pray these prayers together. And my hope and my prayer has been that God would begin to show that to you. And as he shows you that, he gives you a word, you share that. And we come together and we share that together. And we say, look, here's all that God is doing. Let's, let's put it together. And this is, what it, this is what it looks like. And then we all pick it up together and we say, yes, this is our church. This is our calling. Let's move in it. Will you do that with me? Yeah. Thank you. Let's pray.